Hi, I'm Tim Gillespie, and this is the Crosswalk Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. If you are one of our regular listeners, we are so glad you choose to journey with us, and we pray every single message inspires you and helps you to become the person God intended you to be, and of course, to love well. If you are already a giver, thank you so much. If this is something you have not yet done, I want to invite you to start doing that right now. Go to crosswalkvillage.com give and give a one-time gift, or even beyond that, become a recurring giver here at Crosswalk. And you can do that from wherever you're listening from. What is incredible about Crosswalk is that we have givers who don't live here in Southern California or near any of our other campuses, but support the work of Crosswalk from Southern California to the ends of the earth. Thank you for considering this. And now, listen to the message. My hope is you will allow Jesus to speak to you in a way that will change your life. Hey, good morning, Crosswalk. Good morning. morning. You doing all right? Good, good. I need you to do me a favor. There's a ton of people standing in the back. If you can move in, that would be great. Just move a little forward, a little in this direction. You go south. Oh, you guys are going north. Um, You go north. Is that west? I don't really know. Just move in a little bit so we can get some extra seats for people. That would be super awesome. Great to have you here. Thank you for being a part of this. I want to give a shout out to a few things today. First of all, I want to give a shout out to our Portland campus because they are stuck at home for the second weekend in a row. Yeah, I know. It's been snowing and raining and there was like an inch of ice on their um, parking lot. And so they felt like um, rather than have church, they're just going to play hockey all day. Um, no, I'm just kidding. They're sta- hopefully you're staying home and you're staying safe up there in the Portland area. Um, so I want to give a shout out to them and thank you guys for watching and being a part. I know some of you have just gotten, in each other, gotten together in each other's homes because you're just tired of being um, stuck by snow. But anyway, uh, thank you for that. And then secondly, we want to give a shout out to our New England campus. They are celebrating five years as a church. And so we're super excited for them. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. We're really happy for everything that they're doing out there in their town. And they've actually, as you know, they've actually helped um, our Lovewell Hartford, Connecticut campus get going. So that's really exciting for them as well. And we're looking forward to meeting all of those folk at our conference in April as everybody comes in and hangs out. So we are on the third week of this New Wine series. And, uh, you know, these metaphors, new wine, new wineskins, old wine, old wineskins, these metaphors are great. I love metaphors. When I stepped into my doctoral program um, a few years ago, and um, my major professor was Dr. Leonard Sweet. And I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. He writes like three or four a year. He's very prolific. But we sat down and the first thing he said is um, this week, it was a whole week that we were doing up in Portland, actually. He said, this week, we're going to be talking about the seven metaphors for the modern church. And I was like, oh, we'll be out of here in like 30 minutes. That shouldn't take too long. He went five full days, eight hours a day on just seven different metaphors. And I learned through that program that um, two things. Number one, metaphors are a great teaching tool, of course, you know, allegories, metaphors, um, But I learned that what Lynn would do is he would try out all the metaphors on us as his class, and then they'd make it into a book later on. Because I'd be reading a book he put out, and I was like, he talked about that last year at our advance. We didn't go on retreats. We went on advances because we were aggressive like that. Um, Anyway, so after a few, you know, I was in that program about two and a half, three years. Um, Towards the end, like, I got to know Lynn. We were friends, and... um, 
it was just kind of funny because he was, he, was, he was teaching some metaphor and it just wasn't working for me. And I finally, like, and he's like going in trying to make it work. I finally raised my hand. I'm like, Lynn, um, that's, that, that's dumb. That doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. And he goes, oh, you don't like my metaphor? And I was like, no. And he's like, get your own then. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he wrote a book on it. So he wins um, for sure. But... But this new wine, old wine, new wineskin, um, old wineskin metaphor really works. But we're actually moving on from the wine and the wineskins to talk about the vineyard. So as we unpack this metaphor, we need to realize that there are at least three components that are really critically important in this particular metaphor, right? The first point that we need to know is that the father owns the garden, right? He is the gardener. He owns the vineyard and the garden where the vineyard actually is. So just take that as an assumption. When we talk about the garden, when we talk about the vineyard itself, God is the one who owns it. It's his domain, it's his kingdom, and he has sovereignty over it, as well as the fact that he is the gardener of that garden. Number two, Jesus is the vine. Now, this will be familiar to you, you know this, but it's important. Christ and nothing else, right, is the true vine, Christ is the vine, not the church, not tradition, not anything else. Christ is the vine. We cannot supplant Jesus in this. We cannot allow our tradition to be what feeds us. It must be from Christ. In fact, branches placed anywhere else will wither and die eventually. And then we know this. We are the branches in this particular metaphor. That is, the followers of Jesus are the branches. We get our sustenance from the vine, which is growing in the vineyard or the garden of God. So why don't we jump right into the text. Today we're going to be studying from John chapter 15. That's where we're going to sit for most of the time. And it begins like this. I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. There you go. Christ, nothing else is the true vine. Branches placed anywhere else are false branches. The gardener, the Greek word is, um, I said it in the 9 a.m. and I didn't think I said it right, and I said it three different ways and none of them were right, so I'm not gonna give you the Greek. Um, Because it looks like the word George, but it's Gorgos. So I just said it. Um, I don't know why we did all that together, but thanks for that little journey. But it's the common word for gardener, for farmer. So what happens is the moment Jesus says, I'm the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. The moment he says this, everyone in the audience is clicked in, right? Everyone is there. They're like, oh yeah, we know this. We understand what's happening, right? And this role is retained by the father himself. And it's not the first time we've actually seen God spoken to or spoken of as a gardener. We can go back to Psalm 80 and it says, come back, we beg you. O God of heaven's armies, look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted, the sun you have raised yourself. So he's speaking in language that is not unfamiliar to the people who are listening to what it is that he is saying. Right? I'm the, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. John 15, 2, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. Now, we see that there are three types of branches and believers in the first part of this chapter. And um, so let's break it down real quick. So first of all, there's those who bear no fruit. Now, it's important that we understand, I think, that this text can be interpreted very dangerously. 
It can be interpreted very dangerously, and it can make us feel pretty horrific about ourselves when we read this text. And particularly, chapter 15, verse 2, and chapter 15, verse 6, we got to spend a little time on so we understand it. Because what happens is we read this text, and the interpretation is those who bear no fruit... And we think, okay, what is the fruit? And the fruit we understand to be evangelism or we are creating new Christians, right? And that's the metric that we have a tendency to think about of ourselves. And when we read that, often we go, I don't know that I've made a new Christian. And we talk about evangelism all the time. Like we're doing a series that is about inviting people to be in a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We're about to do that in our next series. We're giving you Bible studies. We're going to give you the opportunity to invite somebody into that study and hopefully invite them into a relationship with Jesus and ultimately into baptism. But if you interpret this text as that is the only metric, that is the only fruit, then we've really made some mistakes. So bear that in mind as we continue on. So there's those who bear no fruit. Then there's those who bear some fruit. They're true believers, but they could be doing a little bit better, right? They're kind of the, the, the semi-professionals in this regard. And then there's those who bear much fruit, right? But let's go back to those who don't bear fruit at all, those who bear no fruit. Sometimes it feels like those who bear no fruit are those who create no followers of Christ. But I need you to understand this. That idea, that concept is alien to the New Testament teaching. Why? Well, let me tell you. Galatians explains this to us. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Evangelism. That's it. That's all it says, right? No, there's a lot of words after that. This kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So there is a great deal of different types of fruit in the garden and, from, and that come from the branches. This is important to note. And it's also important to ask the question, what fruit of the Spirit is being produced in you? I'm not saying that as an as a accusation. I'm saying that you should know, Right? Do people find you particularly joyful? I guess not. Um, maybe you're just steadfast. You're not joyful. You're just steadfast. I don't know. Um, well, what, but two things we should note. One, God producing in you. You're not producing this. God is producing this in you. Right? And are you, are, do you recognize what the fruit of the Spirit that God is producing in you? And by the way... That fruit, that fruit is what leads other people to understand who Jesus is. That fruit is what draws people in. So evangelism is actually an outflow of the fruit that God places in us and grows in us. So the metric is not, did you make a bunch of little Christians? I don't know if I like little Christians better than baby Christians. I said baby Christians at nine, I didn't like it feels weird. But little Christians just seems like they're small. Um, other Christians, that's not the only metric, right? What are the results of your study, your discipline, your prayer, your hope for outcomes? Right? But interestingly, there's a second interpretation of chapter 15, verse 2. One says you'll be cut off, but there's another interpretation that is not used nearly as much, is still valid within kind of the rubric of how you can interpret this particular text and this Greek but we don't use it so much. I like it a little better, but it's not nearly as popular. The second interpretation of 15.2 is not that you will be cut off, but that you will be lifted up, as in lifting a branch up to the sun in order to help it produce more fruit. 
Because you do understand that pruning is not about cutting off, even though you do that sometimes. Pruning is actually about producing more fruit. Like we've got a bunch of, um, we've got a bunch of citrus trees in our backyard. And I know nothing about um, plant husbandry, as they say. Does nobody say that? I think that's what it's called. I know nothing about it. I just know that once the oranges fall off, we got to trim the trees real quick. But I have no process in trimming those trees to make sure that they will be more productive. Those branches will be more productive next time. I just cut them so they're not running into each other. I need to study a little more because the more I've studied about pruning, the more I realize it's not just about cutting off branches. It's about cutting off the piece of the branch or the part of the branch that does not produce fruit so that the rest of the branch can produce more fruit. So it's not just a getting rid of, it's a helping, it's a lifting up. So there is a second interpretation that you can use. It's not used as much, and my bet is that's because academics have said it's not as valid or it's not as strong. The text doesn't lead us there as strong. But I wanted you to know that there is a... Because you read 15.2, and you start to feel like, man, God's just, you know, God's just got his clippers, and he's just tearing us all up. But then he's talking to his disciples, so he says in 15.3, hey, you have already been pruned and purified by the message that I have given you, Right? So a couple things. Number one, we begin to understand that when he's talking about this, he's not actually talking about salvation, but about living a productive life in Christ. And that they have been, and the NIV says it this way, trimmed clean, which is a really nice handling of this text, because of their proximity and hearing of the message of Jesus. In other words, God has been doing the pruning work in their lives, and now it's done, and they're ready to produce fruit. So how does the message of Jesus clean us? It's not just forgiveness and righteousness, although that's a piece of it. It's the constant cleaning of our hearts, right? Those little spirit-led decisions that keep us on the right path. Those little voices of our spirit-led conscious that remind us who we belong to and who we are connected to. This is why, you know, we want you to abide in Scripture. We want to give you every opportunity to use the resources that we create to continue to hear the Word of God every single day so that you abide, And then that's what he says in John 15, 4. He says this powerful statement, remain in me and I will remain in you. And the key word here is to remain. Why is it the key word? Because it's used 11 times in this pericope. It is used 40 times in the gospel of John and 27 more times in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It seems to suggest an effortless resting in the Lord, confident in the promised union between the vine and the true branches. It seems to emphasize an ongoing faith and loving obedience to the Father and Son that results in fruit. In other words, the result of remaining is the production of fruit. We have a tendency to make it harder than that. We're like, hey, don't just remain, right? You you have this responsibility to be producing fruit. God's producing fruit in you when you remain. Right? We do the discipline so that we can put ourselves on the track to recognize the fruit that God is doing in us, that God is creating in us. You know, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. It'll be 29 in September, which is just incredible. And some of the reasons why we're still together is that we didn't leave. I know that seems an oversimplification, but she, she's still there. It's amazing and super awesome. Because we remained, we were able to grow together, sustain one another, 
and recognize the fruit of that relationship. But it's about abiding. It's about remaining. If we remain, by the way, we'll be pruned because the good gardener who is God will do the pruning so that our fruit will increase. Here, here's what's interesting. Um, my wife and I actually last week we were cutting, um, we were we were trimming down a rose bush in our um, in our yard that has it, it had gotten some disease about a year back, and we've just been trying to kind of grow it out of the disease, and it seemed like like it wasn't working that much, and so we'd get these roses, but they were really like wonky. Um, they weren't beautiful. I'll put them that way. Anyway, so we started to trim and we started to cut, but you could see where the disease stopped, and then it became healthy again. So we didn't cut off the whole branch. We just cut down to where the disease was and then we cut it and then it should be able to grow from there. And my bet is it'll grow pretty profoundly. We could have just ripped it up and gotten rid of it because it's no good, but I think there's something there to be saved. And so that's how we cut it. And by the way, when I say we, I mean, she was cutting it and I was going, hmm, yes, it's a, it's a metaphor for preaching. Um, so I'm not, I'm not that helpful, let's be clear, most of the time. Um, then, then John goes on to say this, for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. When you walk away, the pruning stops. The production of good fruit stops. The sustenance that comes from the vine, it all stops. And so he says, don't leave. Don't leave. Don't leave when it doesn't feel like your spiritual life is working. Don't leave. Don't leave when, when you struggle with the community that God has placed you in. Don't leave. Don't leave because God's still doing this work in you. Remain because that fruit will come. And then he says, yes, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when phrases like this happen in scripture, it's easy for Christians to be like, see, if you're not with Christ, you cannot do any good in the world. Come on. We know that's not true. There's amazing people who don't believe in Jesus, who have done amazing things for the world, right? We can acknowledge that. I think that's fair. But when your purpose and your spirituality and the God you serve and all that comes into line, there is a particular kind of joy that is expressed by living a life in concert with the God who made you, right? So it's not that good things can't happen. If you don't believe in Jesus, I just think you become a full human being when you're doing and living in the way that Christ wants you to and you're expressing who God is into the world. I think when you add this text to the previous text in chapter 14 and see the Galatian text that the fruit is not just new believers, although they'll be attracted. This verse is really about discipleship and the fruit that abiding in Jesus creates a new heart, new wine, and the fruits of the Spirit. And here's the thing about evangelism. Evangelism is the result of the fruits of the Spirit being expressed into the world through you because people know who God is through you and the fruits that God has produced in you. In John 15, 6, and this one we got to spend a little time on, anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Now you put this text, 15.6, along with 15.2, where it says God is doing this pruning, and all of a sudden it sounds like we've got a God who's just doing gardening like I do, just cutting off branches willy-nilly and throwing them in your solo stove to burn. We all have solo stoves, right? Those people send more emails than anyone on the planet. People who have solo stoves know what I'm talking about. Everybody else is like, you know. um, they're basically little fire pits anyway. Um, 
This is what it sounds like. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Let's catch the phrase. Anyone who does not remain. This is not cutting off. This is those choosing not to remain, not to abide. This is vacating the relationship. Now, this means something particularly to us. Let me tell you why. Because our, under, our understanding of soteriology or salvation theology, if you will, is that you can choose to be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but God loves you and trusts you so much that he will not compel you to be in relationship with him. And once you've chosen to be in relationship with him, you can at some point, if you so choose, step away from that relationship, right? We are not a once saved, always saved kind of church. We're a church that believes you can step away from that relationship, and by church, I mean we're a group of people who have this theological understanding, right? It's different than some other denominations. Now, here's the thing. Um, we, we have a tendency to be like, oh, we're not like those once saved, always saved kind of people. But we kind of do the opposite. We're like once saved, maybe saved. Right? We're like, you know, if somebody asks you, are you saved? You're like, yeah, no, I, th I think. No, I, where'd, I, where'd I put that? It's like losing a set of car keys. We're like, I had them just a minute ago. I'm not sure. So we have a tendency to walk around not being sure that we're saved. We can be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me say this again. We can be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amen. That's, that's a good one to amen to, just for the record. Um, but if you don't want to be in heaven, God will not compel you because he loves you and trusts you enough to believe that you will make the decision that you believe is right for you. The risk that God takes on us is unreal. It's unreal. And that, you know, that's different than a reformed theology. That's different than kind of a once saved, always saved theology. And the reason why I say that is because it feels like to me that um, Jesus is saying, like, if you want to go, like, you're going to wither and die. I don't want you to go, but if you want to, I'm not going to stop you, right? We are both sustained by the blood of Christ coursing through our veins and by the pruning of the good gardener. But when we leave, we don't have that sustenance and we don't have that pruning. And we have not been planted in the garden that grows us. We often see this as if we don't produce fruit, we'll be cut off and thrown away. But nothing from what I can tell in this text is further from the truth. God gives us a choice to leave if we feel we must. And in the midst of this, I want to say one more thing. And this is kind of a parenthetical statement. I don't know if it'll resonate with you or not. And I don't know if it, uh, I'm just going to say it. You do what you want with it. Leaving church is not always leaving faith. And the reason why I want to say this is because there are some of you who had to leave church for a period of time so you could remain faithful. Right? I, was, I was watching a report from someone up in our denomination about how many people had left church. And the word that he used was apostatized. These people apostatized out of the Seventh-day Adventist church or out of church, out of the faith. And I was like, I don't know that that's right. That may be the amount of people that left church, but I don't know that that's the amount of people that left faith. Because sometimes churches can be so caustic and toxic that you can't stay in a relationship with Jesus and be around those people anymore. You have to step away to maintain your faith in Jesus. So I just want to recognize that and, and pray and hope and work hard that Crosswalk will never be a church where someone feels that way. And it may be for you and your experience. I hope not. 
But I just want to call that out because just because you step away from the church doesn't mean you've stepped away from faith. I also don't want to encourage you to step away from church. We'd like you to be here because we'd like you to remain and abide so that the community can be part of that growing and pruning, all of that. So I just wanted to say that. Jesus continues, and I need to go a little more quickly now. Um, But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. This text is actually moving to prayer. It's moving to a spiritual discipline, right? It's saying, listen, you can ask for anything, and and of course, I'm going to give it to you. Now, this is fascinating, right? Because we read this, and we're like, okay, line it up. I'm going to ask for some things, and God's got to give it to me. Let's be clear, right? Prayer, well, let me start this way. Abiding changes us. It transforms us. And pretty soon, our prayers are transformed in the same way. I think B.F. Westcott said it the best in his, his commentary on the gospel according to John. He says, the petitions of the true disciples are echoes, so to speak, of the words of Jesus because his teaching is transformed in the supplication. In other words, the more we abide with Christ, the more we abide with God, the more our prayers stop sounding like Christmas lists and the more they become the words of God in the world. Because we know who Jesus is. Because we abide in him and his words, learning from Jesus, not just about Jesus. Our words echo Jesus' words. This is where influence happens, right? This changes our understanding of what we pray for because we are but echoes of God's will expressed through Jesus. And then he says, when you produce much fruit, you're my true disciples. This brings great joy, sorry, glory to my Father. Because we abide in Jesus and are sustained through Jesus, pruned by the Father, then we glorify God by our expression of who he is in the world because the world discovers God through his disciples. The world discovers who God is through me and through you. And if we're true disciples, we're showing the world who Jesus is and who God is. This is why your fruits are important. And I've always thought about, you know, people are going to discover God through the very best day you have. The way you express joy, peace, love, grace, they're going to discover God through that. People are also going to discover who God is through your worst days. And that's always a little shocking, right? That's not to say we don't have bad days. Of course we do. And of course we're going to be honest about the way we give testimony to God, even in our worst moments. But it's important that we recognize that this is how the world discovers Jesus often. And so our fruits are part of what we're able to show the world. And then he just reiterates again, I have loved you even as my father has loved me. Remain in my love. This is a circular love that we see in the book of John. As Jesus remained in God's love, right? We remain in Jesus's love. God loves Jesus. God loves us. Jesus loves God. Jesus loves us. We love God. We love Jesus. We are beginning to love the world as God has so loved the world. Bearing fruit means loving others as God has loved them and giving witness to the world of that love. Such fruit bearing is possible most profoundly by abiding in Jesus who is the vine. And then there's this phrase. He says this in verse 10. He says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. You know what's fascinating? This is the opposite of what was said in chapter 14, verse 15, which said that loving Jesus would result in obeying his commands. Here it says, obeying his commands results in loving Jesus. Can sound a little confusing, 
But the only natural con- conclusion to this is that these are reversible statements. It's that they are so interrelated and inseparable that you cannot have one without the other. When you love God, you obey his commands. When you obey his commands, you are showing that you love God. And by the way, do you know what his commands are? That you love one another and that you do that well. And lastly, he says, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. In fact, so much so that your joy will actually overflow, which he's kind of recapitulating and giving us the climax of this mashal, which is the Hebrew word for this allegory. And the point of this particular mashal is the abiding, the remaining, that results in a particular kind of joy, something deeper than circumstance, right? Paul speaks of this kind of joy in the book of Philippians when he talks about how he's learned the secret to being content in everything, well-fed or hungry, naked or well-clothed. I can do all things in Christ who strengthened me. He's like, I found the joy that transcends, so I'm okay, right? This is deeper than happiness when you feel good about yourself one day and not so good about yourself the next day. It's something that sustains through the worst of things. To remain is to fully realize what Jesus has to offer you because it doesn't always come on day one or day 10 or day 100 of following Jesus. It is a long obedience in the same direction as Nietzsche says, right? That we would follow Christ and move closer and closer to the, to the object of our love. I think joy and fruit and productivity and glorifying God in the world, changing the world, and a different experience of what humanity can be, fruitful, joyful, growing, pruned by the one who loves us so much as not to destroy us, not to throw us away, but to grow us and cleanse us and make us fruitful. So what what are we left with? We're left with one question from this particular metaphor. And it's simply this. Will you remain? Will you remain with Christ when it doesn't feel like your prayers are going above the ceiling? Will you remain in Christ when things are going so well it doesn't even feel like you need God because you figured it all out and you made it happen and it's working and life is great? Will you remain when you struggle with the people around you or with your faith community? Will you remain no matter what, so that that love of Christ will sustain you and so that the pruning that God does in your life will create more good fruit in you. There's a song that just wraps us all together, so I want you to just sit with us, listen. If you want to sing because the words are on the screen, go ahead, but you don't have to. But we just want you to be in the moment knowing that if you remain, it is God that tends this garden.